Good morning. It's good to see you. There you go. Um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm always excited when we get to get together and be in God's house and, and worship Him and um, just be in His presence. Um, and we serve a great God, don't we? He loves us. He knows us. And uh, we come this time of year where we start celebrating Christmas and you can see the Christmas lights up and, and uh, going up all around the nation and just celebrating what this time of year means. Though we can, we can lose, we can lose the meaning of this year, uh, this time of year. Um, it's easy to. We get bombarded with all of our parties. We get bombarded with all the things we feel like we need to get done, or, or places we need to be, and things we need to buy, and and uh, the stress can definitely rise during this time of year. And uh, I'm excited as we begin a new series this morning um, that's going to finish off 2016 and then take us into 2017, as you can see behind me, is we're going to be focusing on Christ. Um, we're going to end this year focused on Christ, and we're going to start the new year focused on Christ. And today we're going to be uh, looking at what this name means. And if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you, you do, I hope you're in the habit of bringing your, your Bible with you to, to church. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1. And what we're going to be doing as you work your way to Matthew chapter 1, what we're going to be doing with this series is we're going to be looking at some names, some attributes, some titles of who Jesus was. Uh, one, so we can come to an understanding of what that means. We can come to an understanding of the depth and, and the, the reality of it all. We can uh, understand why it's important to know what this means. And ultimately, not just to gain head knowledge, but how are we to live in response to this understanding of who Jesus is, who He was, and who He will forever be? Um, as you make your way to the Gospel of Matthew, it's the first Gospel, the first book of the New Testament. And we're going to begin our series by talking about one of the most common names Jesus is known by, and that is the Christ. As we embark on Christmas, or obviously Christmas, um, we're going to begin our story, or our passage this morning, within the story of Christmas and setting up the family line, the family tree of Jesus. And so if you're in Matthew chapter 1, um, this is not the most thrilling passages of Scripture to be read. Um, and we're not going to read the entire genealogy. If you're a New King James fan, you probably know this as the begats. Um, basically, we have a family tree and a gene genealogy uh, very similar to what we find in the book of Genesis and what we find in 1 Chronicles, the Old Testament. But look with me in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1. And this can be our primary passage for this morning. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now Matthew is a gospel. Does anybody know what the word gospel means? Good news, that's right. And it's good news because there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're good news because they're about Jesus Christ. Now each Gospel is written to a different uh, audience or different group of people. Matthew is writing to uh, Jewish believers and, and Jewish converts into Christianity, Judeo-Christians. 
And what Matthew does is we open it up into his uh, opening uh, lines of the gospel is he begins giving a genealogy, a family tree, an ancestry. Now we read that and it may not seem that important. It may not even seem that thrilling or something we want to read every single day of our life. But Matthew has a point here. Since he's writing to a Jewish audience, see, they, they adored their Jewish ancestry. They endured who they came from, where they came from. They remind them what God had been doing in their life. And so if you look there in verse 1, you see Matthew opens up the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham, if you're a child growing up in church or been around church at all, you know is Father Abraham, who had many sons, right? Do we need to do it? No. Uh, but Matthew's making a very... Bold statement here to Jewish people to understand where Jesus came from, that he is from Abraham. He is a Jewish uh, man. He was a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher, and ultimately he is the Christ, the Jewish Savior. And so as Matthew begins to unfold the genealogy of Jesus, you walk through that verse to Abraham is the father of Isaac, Isaac's father of Jacob, and on and on it goes. They were the father, they were the father, they were the father, until we come to verse 16 where we come to Jacob, the father of Joseph, uh, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born and is called, or who is called, Christ. We read that in 2016, and that's a passage of Scripture, if, if we're honest, I'll be honest with you, it's a passage of Scripture that I kind of fly through at times, and I want to get to the good stuff. You only want to be honest and say you do that with your Bible sometimes? All right, we have a few honest people here this morning. Very good. Okay, and this is one of those passages that, that you kind of read through and like, yeah, I know there's a point. It is God-breathed, and, and it's all from God, and it's there, and it's, it has a purpose. But 2016, I don't see that purpose. Um, Matthew's purpose is to draw a Jewish audience into understanding who Jesus Christ is. See, when I come to a book today, if, if I am not caught or captured by the book within the first chapter or two, I typically put the book down. If I sit down in a movie and, and I'm not into the movie by 20 minutes, I, I'm easily able to walk away and turn it off and go do something else. And we come to Matthew, the thing we can have a problem with is we can just jump over all of this and misunderstand what Matthew is wanting us to understand. Jesus cannot be the Christ, He cannot be the Savior unless He came from Abraham. And Matthew is drawing a line here in this simple genealogy all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, in which God called Abram out to be with him and that he would be his God and all the nations through him would be blessed. This is where Matthew is drawing the line to. And so as a Jewish individual reading Matthew's letter here, they're saying, whoa, that's the one I've been waiting for. When Jesus is the Christ, Matthew is making a very bold statement. You see, Jesus in Scripture and in, in the time that Jesus ran was a very common name. It's kind of like Michael or, or, uh, or John or Timothy. It's a common name today. And Jesus was a common name. Jesus was not the only Jew named Jesus. Okay, And so when Matthew specifies Jesus, he specifies that he is the Christ. And there's only one person in Scripture that could be the Christ. In order to be the Christ, Jesus had to fulfill the prophecies written about him in what we call the Old Testament. So you go back to Genesis and all the way through Malachi. In order for Jesus to be the Christ, he had to fulfill over 300 prophecies thousands of years before he was even born. 
This is the weight of the statement that Matthew is trying to bring his Jewish audience in understanding that he's wanting us to understand today is that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies laid out by God. That is why he is the Savior. That is why we should put our trust in him and our faith in him. That is why we sing it as well with our soul. That is why he's the Lion of Judah. That is why he is the Christ. He's the one you've been waiting for. See, as a Jewish boy or girl growing up in a home, your stories at night, your bedtime stories, would be stories from the Old Testament. They'd be stories about how Joshua led him into the promised land. They'd be stories about how Moses came in and he brought the plagues and the Red Sea crossing and the manna from heaven and the water from rocks. They'd be stories about Mount Sinai. As you hear these stories, you hear the prophecies of God is going to come and he's going to renew and restore his people back to him because there would be stories of, of, of tragedy and the kingdom falling and David dying and Solomon dying and all this, this wickedness and sinfulness. But you hear, you hear this glimmer of hope there's a Messiah on the horizon Matthew is saying here he's here he's right here the one you've been waiting for the one you've been hearing about the one that can restore your soul the one who is the light of the world the one who wants to bring hope into your heart and peace into your heart and and allow you to come into the presence of God he's here it's Jesus it's the Christ the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos which is derived from Hebrew in the word that we meet we read as Messiah it's a word that means anointed. And so when Matthew says that Jesus, who is the Christ, he's saying he is the one who is anointed by God for a very specific task, and that is to fulfill the plans and promise of God as told from old. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Over 300 and they begin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when, when the Lord came into the garden and Adam and Eve had sinned and they became aware of their nakedness and became ashamed and they hid from God. And God came to, to, to have them confess what they had done. He then brings judgment upon them. And in the midst of the judgment that He brings to Eve, He says he speaks of the child that would come from the seed of a woman in Genesis chapter 3. He does not say the child that comes from a seed of a man, which is what would imply when, when a man and woman get together, that's you know how babies come about. He says a seed of a woman, meaning imply that there is not going to be a man involved in this child. He speaks of the virgin birth in the midst of the judgment and sending them out of his presence. He speaks of the hope of the virgin birth that is going to restore this relationship again. And there's over 300 prophecies plus prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus. They speak of of where he was going to be born, how he was going to be born, when he was going to be born, how he was going to live, how he was going to teach, how he was going to minister, what his purpose was going to be, how people were going to respond to him, how his own people, the Jewish people, were going to reject him, how he was going to die on a tree, which would be the cross, how he would die in such a way it would be so violent that Scripture prophesies he would be undistinguishable as a man. So you watch, Jason, I got to talk in this last Wednesday, and you watch The Passion of the Christ, and even though I've watched it, and I'm just like, oh, how am I worth that? Mel Gibson in directing that didn't even come close to the way scriptures describe Jesus actually looked as he hung on the cross. 
He was unrecognizable as a man as he hung on the cross. And Scripture prophesies that about Jesus, that he would, be, he would die as a criminal. They would place him in a tomb, and he would come out three days later. It speaks about how he would rise and ascend to the right hand of the Father. All of these things are spoken of before Jesus was even born. And as we come into Matthew, when Matthew says that he is Jesus who was born, who is the Christ, Matthew is putting so much weight on this name. He's Christ. In order for him to be the Christ, he had to completely and perfectly fulfill everything that was said about him. Couldn't miss any of it. If you want to go home later this afternoon and Google a guy by the name of Professor Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner is a, a uh, or was a professor out in Santa Barbara, California. And he took his class and he wanted to apply the science of probability to Jesus, and, and how, if it, how probable was it for one individual to fulfill eight prophecies in which are told about Jesus Christ in Scripture? Just eight, not 300 plus, just eight. So he took some of the core prophecies and he applied the science of probability, and what he came up with is in order for one individual to fulfill just these eight prophecies, it would be 10 to the 17th power meaning 10 with 17 zeros behind it. You can just write that out if you've got a pen and paper and see how improbable it would be. In order for us to understand that, he goes on to write that if you mark one of 10 tickets and you place all the tickets in half and then you thoroughly stir them and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the one ticket that you marked would be 1 in 10. Now to understand the probability of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies and just these eight prophecies and being the Christ, what you would need to do is you would need to take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and you would cover them over the face of Texas. And that many silver dollars would cover Texas two feet deep. And one of those silver dollars you would mark and you would place somewhere in the midst of this two feet deep pile of silver dollars and you would take one individual and you would blindfold him. And you would tell that individual, you need to go across and find the one silver dollar that I have marked. You can take as long as you want. You can go as far as you want, but you can only pick up the one I have marked. The probability of that individual finding the silver dollar, the right one over the face of Texas, two feet deep silver dollars would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. What are the chances that that, that individual would do it? Very little. He goes on to conclude it's the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing that they wrote them in their own wisdom. See, when we come to Scripture, Scripture tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. It means it comes from the mouth of God, that no man wrote by their own interpretation, but the Spirit guided them and led them and gave us what we have today in calling the Bible. And so we know that the prophets did not speak in their own wisdom, but they spoke as the wisdom given to them by God. And so Matthew does the same here. When he writes that Jesus is the Christ, he is saying that Jesus is the one spoken about when the first man and woman were cast out of the garden. 
He is the one that would be born of a virgin birth. He is the one that Micah spoke about that would be born in Bethlehem. He is the one that would be spoken about when uh, would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would be of the family of David, that he would have a forerunner who we call John the Baptist that would prepare the way for the people. He would be the one that would fulfill the mission and the purpose and the ministries and the teachings of God that were laid out by scriptures. He is the one who was taught but then rejected by many and then suffered on the cross. This is Jesus. This is who we worship here today. This is how we're able to come into the presence of God the way we do is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have to understand today that Jesus was not his first name and Christ was not his last name. He did not go around and answer to, hello, Mr. Christ. Okay? It is a title of absolute authority that he has been commissioned by God from the beginning of time to save us from our sins. As Matthew's writing this, again, to a Jewish audience, they would have understood that in order for Jesus to be the Christ, he would have had to have fulfilled what is known as the Davidic covenant. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 7. The Davidic covenant is the promise that God gave to David. He would not be able to build his temple, but he told David that your seed will remain on the throne for generations, forever. And it wasn't speaking about a physical throne or a physical kingdom, but it was, it was laying the line to Jesus. But in order for Jesus to fill that Davidic covenant, he would have had to done some very specific things. One, it would have meant that he had to do a specific role, and that was to be a redeemer. The word redeem means to pay a price in order to secure the release of something or someone, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. When we sing that he is our redeemer, we are saying that Jesus Christ paid the price of our sins. He secured our salvation, not by anything we can do, but everything he did so that we might be saved. To be a Jewish individual and hearing that Matthew proclaimed Jesus to be the Christ would mean that Jesus would have to bring a restored and renewed kingship. Jesus restored the kingdom of God because if you look back in Samuel, when the people cried out for a king, it's because everyone else had a king. And Samuel's heart broke because he wanted the people to have God to be their king. He wanted God to lead them because he knew that God's presence is what they need in their life and they needed their, their hearts to be, to be focused on who God was. When Jesus came, that's what he came to bring. He came to bring the good news because the kingdom of God is at hand. That he's restoring this, this harmonious, harmonious relationship with the people, all because he is the Christ. He is renewing the covenant given at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 when God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. When Jesus steps out of the heavens and we celebrate Christmas as he was born as a baby, it is stating that God is claiming us as his own, that we are made in his image, that he is our God and we are his people and he is calling us, beckoning us, beckoning us and begging us to come to him. That's the Christ. In order for Jesus to be the Christ, he had to do this. And if you look through the Gospels, what you find is when Jesus comes in Jerusalem on his last days and the people are waving palm branches and what we call Palm Sunday is because they believe Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to be the king. Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And they believed him to be the king, but they believed it in a physical way. Jesus came to set a kingdom in our hearts in a spiritual, eternal way, one that would last forever. To be the Christ, Jesus would have had to establish justice and righteousness 
and security. And Jesus shows this in His ministry as He gives justice to people who have been cast out of society, the downtrodden, people that just, they just shove them out of the communities. And Jesus goes and He meets with them and He teaches with them and He talks with them and He gives them the time of the day. Jesus showed righteousness in that He showed that God's righteous standard, His holiness against sin, had to be dealt with. And because we can't do it on our own, God sent Jesus Christ to take the wrath of sin upon Himself so that God could be declared righteous. He showed security. Because in the eyes of a Jewish individual, the only secure place you can truly have is into the presence of God. And Jesus was God in the flesh 100%. That's what made Him the Christ. And He comes that we can have the security of our salvation all because of what He did for us and how He loves us. To be the Christ, Jesus would have had to restore the created order of God. Not to mean that there's not going to be war or world peace or anything like that, but that we can now be in a relationship, an intimate relationship with God because God loves us. To be the Christ, Jesus would have been, had to have been empowered by the Spirit of God and in turn empowered those who were under Him. We turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3 and we read when Jesus comes out of the water, He looks up into the heavens. Behold, the heavens were opened to Him and He saw the Spirit of God ascending on Him like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you go to the end of the Gospels, you'll find Jesus preparing His disciples for the time where He's going to depart. And before He departs, He gives them specific instructions. You are to remain in Jerusalem until the promised Spirit comes upon you. So not only was Jesus empowered by God, but He empowered others to have the exact same Spirit that He was given. You see, when we come to Jesus Christ, and we celebrate Christ must, It's to hold more weight. It's not something we should just flippantly let out of our mouth. It is Christmas because Christ came down. That's why we celebrate. It's not about trees and lights and presents and and food and gatherings and things like that. Those Those are fun. But they can cause us to lose the real reason for the season. People celebrate discounts more than they celebrate God coming down. Hey, I'm just as guilty. I can be so, get so distracted by all the things I think I need to do, all the places I need to be, all the things I need to get done, and forget that this is Christmas. God came to save me. He came to save you. That's what makes Jesus the Christ. So when we, when we use the name Christ... If we use it in any manner other than for its holiness and for the power it is, we abuse and take the name of the Lord in vain. If I were to speak badly about your spouse or your kids, would that make you happy? Maybe the person you're dating? You'd probably get irritated. You'd probably, I'm going to put that preacher in his place. Right hand of fellowship coming right at you. Right? See, when we take the name of Jesus Christ in any other manner than giving Him worship and adoring Him, 
That's what we do. We insult our God. We insult our Maker, the one who loves us and saved us. When I was 19 years old, my, uh, my dad really wanted me to get out of Macomb, Illinois. That's where we lived at the time. It's not because they didn't love me or didn't like me being around. It's because Macomb was not a good situation for me. Um, I got into a lot of bad things, um, alcohol, parties, um, all sorts of things. Don't want to fully get into right now. We'll save it for another day. Because I kept getting into these situations and these troubles, um, my dad... Um, offered to bring me down to this area of Missouri um, to come in and uh, check out Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar. And I wasn't too thrilled about that idea um, because my parents went to Bolivar. Um, my brother met his wife at Bolivar. Um, I had cousins that went to Bolivar, and I thought, that's just my daddy's school, my mom's school. I, I don't know. I'm going to do my own thing, right? Some of y'all have teenagers. You know exactly what, what I was thinking. But my dad threw in this thing, okay, we'll go down to uh, Bolivar, we'll do like a tour of the school, and, and maybe we'll apply while we're there. He already had this set up, so he was just kind of like bring me along and tag me. And, and he says, as we go, uh, we'll go golfing. We'll go golfing at some of the courses that are down in that area, some over at the lake, and we'll just make a whole like little tour, and we'll golf several times, and you used to have to spend a couple hours on campus, and I thought, sure, free golf, um, you know, get out of town for a little while, it'll be fun, we'll stay in hotels, and it'll just be a nice little trip, me and my dad. And so we set off, and we came down, we did the tour and all that, I applied just to appease him, uh, of course I ended up going there the next year, but um, that's, that's another story. Um, and we end up going to Payne Stewart's golf course right off I-44 right here in Springfield. Some of y'all may know where it is. If you're not a golfer, then you drive by it probably almost every day. Anyway, so we go there, and it happened to be such a busy time that uh, we had to be paired with two other individuals because they wanted foursomes to go on out because they want to have this big uh, herd and just being backed up. So we got paired up with these two other individuals. I don't really remember their names. I do remember one individual happened to sell the indestructible tea, um, which my dad bought because he thought that was a cool thing. And we got to talk, and my dad got to talk and didn't know who they were and where they're from, what brought them to Springfield since they weren't from Springfield, uh, their names, occupations, and all that sort of stuff. Stuff. So as we're going, uh, me and my dad are just playing, just kind of having fun, being outside. If you're not a golf fan, you don't understand. You don't have to be good. It's just the fact that you're out and about, and that's really what I try to remember and then always help. But um, these two individuals we we're paired with were um, becoming impaired as we began to golf, and uh, they were having several beverages of the adult quality. And um, so as we were going around, my dad didn't even know them. Um, because um, this sort of beverage can cause you to be a little teeter-totter and uneven, and you realize how the world does rotate, and they began to have an, an effect on their golf game. And as their golf game began to become affected, um, they began to cry out for God to build a large blockade to block water, or they began to cry out uh, Jesus to be their Messiah at that point in time. Um, you probably didn't catch that, but, uh, you know, dang it, euphemism. And, okay, blockade, water. <laughs> Moving on, um, so we're, block, we're going, and, and, they're, and they're crying out. Now, my dad's a preacher, 
And so as they're crying out, God this, God that, Jesus this, Jesus that, I am just waiting for my dad to like call down fire and brimstone from heaven. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen. It's going to be the coolest golf game ever. But my dad is not really a confrontational type of individual. And so he is just getting to know them. He is just talking as they cry out, God this, God that, Jesus this, Jesus that. My dad, my dad just keeps getting to know them, keep talking. Um, and he, he comes to realize almost their entire family history because when you drink certain beverages, you will say certain things that you don't know what you're saying, just in case you don't know. And so they're saying everything that their family's done, who their parents are, where they're from, you know, all their family history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as we get on the back nine, and we're at the 12th hole, my dad tees up. And when my dad does something stupid or does something he doesn't like, he cries out the name Richard. That's his name. Um, and so he tees up and he swings and it hooks. And he's like, Richard! Okay? He blames himself. Now, as he's been doing this, because he'll hit one of those shots every now and then, you know, they've been keeping track. But as we did on the back nine, he, he, he hits one of those shots. And Satan's saying, Richard, he says, Dennis. And I thought, what? <laughs> and the guys looked at him too, but they thought they misheard him. So he goes up to his next shot and he clunks it. You love clunkers, don't you, Nick? Yeah, that was a good one. So he clunks it. He goes, ah, Dennis. And I know I heard him right that time. But I didn't know who Dennis was. But these guys are looking at him. What did he say? He gets up to the green, and he puts it, and he misses it. And again, Dennis! Ugh! And I heard him that time, and they heard him that time, too. Now, I didn't know if my dad was purposely doing bad on this hole, or if he was just having a bad hole, because it happened, right? Nick's my golfer that I know of, so it happens. But as he does this, one of the gentlemen says, why are you saying that? He goes, well, I hit a bad putt. And I was, I, was, I was upset I hit a bad putt. He goes, no, no, no. Why do you keep saying my dad's name like that? He goes, oh, well, last several holes you keep yelling out at my God and my Savior like it's no big deal. So I didn't think you'd mind if I would yell at your dad. That moment in time, reality hit. Jesus is the name above all names. And he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And his name is not to be taken lightly. So now when I do something stupid, slam my toe, I give a nice little, <clears throat> and I say, Michael, because it's my fault anyway. He is the Son of the living God. And when Matthew says he is the Christ, he is saying he is the one that showed how much God loves you. And to belittle His name is to take it in vain and to make your salvation, the grace you've been given, the forgiveness for all of your sins, completely worthless. Jesus asked Peter, well, His disciples, but Peter, I love Peter because he's one of those that just speaks up. He asked his disciples one day, who do people say that I am? And they started rattling off, well, some people say this, some people say that, some people are saying that. And he goes, no, 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 okay, okay. Let me get to the point. Who do you say that I am? 
And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, what Jesus does in that moment is something we all have to do right here, right now, is we have to make a choice. Who do we say Jesus is? Is he just another name to throw out because we, it's our Christian way of cussing? Or is he the Christ, the Son of the living God? Does his name mean something? Or is there something else we can throw off our lips? But we have to make a choice. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, that you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Josh McDowell goes on to say in, in his book, More Than a Carpenter, if when Jesus in the Bible made his claims and he knew that he was not God, then he was, he was lying and deliberately deceiving his followers. But if he was a liar, then he was also a hypocrite because he told others to be honest, whatever the cost, while he himself taught and lived a colossal lie. More than that, he was a demon because he told others to trust him for their eternal destiny. destiny. If he couldn't back up his claims and he knew it, then he was unspeakably evil. Last, he would also be a fool because it was his claims to being God that led to his crucifixion. Many would say that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Let's be realistic. How could he be a great moral teacher and knowingly mislead people at the most important point of his teaching, his own identity? You would have to conclude logically that he was a deliberate liar. And who you decide Jesus Christ is must not be an idle intellectual exercise. You cannot put him on the shelf as a great moral teacher. That's not a valid option. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord and God. But you must make a choice. And the evidence is clearly in favor of Jesus as Lord. Who do you say he is? He either is the Christ or the Son of the living God, or he's just another name in history. But if he is the Christ, and that is who we worship, then let's adore Him. Let's be in awe of Him this year. Maybe you're here this morning and this is the decision you need to make. Who do you say Jesus is? Not who does the person next to you. Not who does your spouse or the person you're dating. Not who do your parents say He is. Not who your grandparents say He is. Not, not who maybe decided who He is for you. Who do you say He is? For you're going to be judged on who you say Jesus is. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, if I have not confessed Jesus Christ personally, as my Lord and Savior, that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Bible is very clear that I am not saved. I am not forgiven for my sins, and I am not in Christ or found in Him. So when God looks at me, if I have not confessed Him personally, God looks at me as an enemy to the kingdom. But if I have confessed Jesus Christ, died for my sins, and rose again and could be forgiven, and I believe that in my heart, and I make it known. That's what confession means. It makes it, it's to make it publicly known. The Bible says I am saved. Past, present, 
future. And that's salvation security. You may be here this morning and that's exactly what you need to do this Christmas year. Is you need to come and confess Jesus is the Christ and I believe that. And I want to make it known right here, right now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And if that's something you need to do, I'm going to be standing right down here. And if you need to ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, then I'd love to meet with you and pray with you and celebrate with you. But maybe you're here and you know that you've been using the name of God and the name of Jesus in vain. Use it like it's any other word. And you know that needs to change, but you need God to help you with that. Maybe you need to come and kneel before the Father. Whoever God has spoken to you, I'm going to invite you to come. As, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for sending your Son to live on this earth, to live a perfect life that we could not, for dying for our sins and rising in that we can be forgiven. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that is, has not accepted you as the Lord and Savior, Father, ask today be the day of their salvation. Let your Spirit just continue to speak to their heart and weigh upon their heart that they come to the saving grace that you give us all. Lord, forgive us those times where we have abused your name. We've used it like any other word, for Lord, you are holy. And we thank you for the love and grace you've given us. Lord, in this time and this place, we come this time of invitation. I ask that you just help us to be obedient to do what you've put upon our hearts. And praise all in your son's name. Amen.